There's this scene in the movie Finding Nemo that I think about a lot. Nemo is stuck in the fish tank at a dentist's office with a bunch of other fish, and they've hatched a plan to escape. But it all starts by letting the fish tank get dirty, covered with algae. And the plan is to let it get so dirty that the dentist is going to have to take the fish out in order to clean the tank. And that's when they'll make a break for it. But one of Nemo's new buddies in the tank is Jacques. He's a cleaner shrimp, which I only just learned is actually a popular aquarium fish or aquarium shrimp. And they're called cleaner shrimp because that's what they do. They scrub and get rid of parasites in the environment. So imagine Jacques' dilemma. His whole thing is cleaning. It's a habit he's known all his life. And the tank is getting filthier and filthier. He knows that for the good of the team, he needs to let the tank be dirty, even though his impulse is to clean. And sure enough, he finally gives in, leans into his old habits, and starts scrubbing the tank. But Gil, the leader of the tank gang, calls Jacques out for doing the wrong thing. Jacques, I said no cleaning. I am ashamed. That part. That little three-word line in the movie. I am ashamed. Complete with, you know, dubious French accent. But that's the line my brain comes back to over and over and over again. (laughs) Because living in the world is hard, especially when you're trying to do the right thing. When we slip up and act in ways that don't live up to our personal standards, we feel guilty, but in a way that makes us realize, oh, I need to watch out for these situations in the future and do the right thing next time. We need to call ourselves out or let other people call us out if we're going to grow. Like, uh, I remember one time I was having an issue with my car battery, and personally, I I don't understand how my car works or what to do when it stops working. So I headed to an auto parts shop and walked right up to someone who worked there to ask for help. Except, um, well, as this man quite nicely informed me, he he did not work there. He he just matched my stereotype of guys who work in auto repair. I am ashamed. Or this other time, on social media, I posted some comment where I referred to something as my spirit animal. And very quickly, I got a DM from someone I knew, sharing a link with a note that said, Hey, I saw your comment and wanted to share this, about why it's actually not great to use the term spirit animal. I'm ashamed. And I should be clear, the guilt that I felt in those moments, it wasn't like a punishing, overwhelming shame that I couldn't escape from. But like Jacques... I knew immediately that I'd made a mistake, jumped to a stereotyped conclusion or said something ignorant and insensitive. And like, that guilt is good, because it means I want to do better. And it's motivating, because in those moments, I created clear rules for myself for the future to help me act in line with my values and avoid these kinds of predicaments again. I I don't think I'll ever quiet my inner Jacques for good, but I can keep working at it. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and this week we'll hear from Dr. Margot Monteith. She's a distinguished professor of psychological sciences at Purdue University, and she spent her career trying to understand the potential benefits of confronting our own prejudices. 
and confronting other people's prejudices. Just like my examples a couple minutes ago, Margot's work highlights how important it can be to keep ourselves in check and to call people out when they're being unfair. I was excited to get her perspective on why and how we should do this. So let's pop over to our conversation. So I wonder just to get us thinking about the all the work that you've done in this area of uh, confronting the prejudices that exists in our communities and in our societies amongst other people. I'm curious, like in the very beginning, what was the seed of it for you that you thought, you know what, I think there's something valuable here that there's an answer to if I apply our our methods to figure it out? Well, I guess that was a very long time ago um, when I was a graduate student in Trish Devine's lab. So she um, had just recently published her seminal 1989 paper on breaking the prejudiced habit, where she distinguished between the automatic and controlled components of stereotyping and prejudice and talked about how people... um, not responding in biased ways is like breaking a bad habit that one needs to become aware that one has responses that are biased and then work on consciously, very consciously replacing those biased um, reactions with less biased thoughts, feelings, behaviors. And um, we had begun when I was at Wisconsin and and in her lab, we had begun to investigate this notion of prejudice-related discrepancies, which was whether people are aware um, that they sometimes do respond, actually do respond in ways that are more prejudiced than they think they should. And we had found that indeed, you know, people appeared to be aware, which was at the time, A lot of folks in the field thought people just weren't aware at all, you know, so just finding that people reported that they were aware of these biases that they had, even though they didn't want to have those biases, and that that predicted um, negative self-directed affect or feeling guilty um, and disappointed with the self. So anyhow, um, I began to think about whether what this process would involve where people would learn how to recognize and to stop themselves from responding in biased ways and whether that process might be able to be kind of automatized with practice so that um, individuals could learn to, um, you know, something triggers a stereotype, but then that triggers a process of control and inhibition. And allowing individuals to kind of kind of like stop and then figure out how to respond in in a way that would be consistent with their standards. And so um, that's when I became interested in the in the in the topic of self-regulation. I'm curious. So you, you mentioned, uh, you know, what was surprising or not at the time to people. And it reminded me when I talked to. Um, uh, Masrin Banashi for this, and she was talking about talking, you know, just suggesting implicit biases was just such a novel, like, it really just makes me wonder what was the culture of 
work in the field that was interested in prejudice, right? It is so it is so ingrained now in most corners of the field that we study today. But that wasn't always the case. So I'm curious, like when you were getting interested, like did you join Trish's lab because that was the thing you were interested in? Or did it sort of sweep you up <laughs> uh, just because you were there? Um, well, I actually went to Wisconsin to work with Len Berkowitz and um, on aggression. And um, I didn't really know about Trish yet because <laughs> she was, she hadn't, She'd just gotten out of grad school. She'd just gotten to her new job at Wisconsin. Uh, when I started was when she was starting. She hadn't published her 89 paper yet. Um, you know, anyhow, I wanted to work on the topic of, of aggression, which also shared, you know, this applied problem with potentially identifying some practical solutions, you know. Um, but then I started to attend Trisha's research group uh, meetings and just kind of fell in love with that as a topic, um, sorry, Andy, what was, <laughs> well, was your, it was how I, how I got interested in that as a topic in grad school. Yeah. You're right to wonder. Cause I did sort of ask two things at exactly the same time. <laughs> so okay. you, you got the part of, I was curious about like where you came from at the start of this, like, was that always an interest, but also what was sort of the culture of the field at the time when it came to talking about things like prejudice, right? Was there a sense that this was still a widespread um, aspect of our social psychology, or really it was sort of fringy at that time to be thinking about how these, you know, automatic judgments can pop into mind when we're talking to someone from a different background as us. Yeah. So at the time we had Gertner and DeVidio's work and Gertner and DeVidio's work really set up I think in many ways and the aversive racism framework set up the notion, you know, that people could have biased responses um, at the same time that they might hold egalitarian beliefs consciously. Um, and yet in that framework and at that time, as far as they kind of had gotten with the with the research and the theory at that time was that people were more prejudiced than they wanted to admit. You know, it, it was the idea that people were kind of hiding their biases or they would engage in bias responses when they could get away with it and explain it in ways that didn't have to do with race or group membership. So they could say, um, that, you know, I didn't do that because of the person's color of their skin. I did that because of this other factor in this situation. And, and so at the time, you know, researchers hadn't kind of gotten to the place where they thought about the possibility that people could both consciously really truly in endorse egalitarianism and yet have biases that occurred automatically, you know, have, be prone to these implicit biases. So um, some might say that Gertner and DeVidio's work really says much the same thing, but it, it's a different twist, right? And I think that's often how we make progress, to be honest, you know, in uh, social psychology is, you know, we kind of were on to something and then all of a sudden 
boom, there's a theory to explain it. There's an explanation to explain. Um, for it. And Gertner and Davidio were doing all, you know, the very, very early priming research um, where they would look at facilitation to negative words, for example, when they were preceded by pictures of black people versus white people. And so they were doing some of that very, very early priming research. Um, but they they weren't describing it in the same way that we have come to understand it in this uh, more modern or contemporized way of truly sincerely embracing egalitarianism while still being prone to biased responses. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the aversive racist doesn't exist or that Gertner and DeVideo's framework was somehow incorrect. I think it can reside, it exists alongside, you know, the notion that some people are just hiding it. Yes. But at the same time, some people aren't. It, it sort of seems like the the key distinction is, you know, the aversive racism model is just that people are they won't they can't admit it because they don't know it. They just have these secret biases, and in some ways that makes it all the more difficult to do anything about it, right? Which is the real value of saying, wait a minute, maybe people can be aware of when they don't live up to their values, right? And so I. I not just me. <laughs> I often liken this to a self-control conflict based in much part to the work that you and others have done, where, you know, when I tell students about it, it's kind of like, just imagine I, this happened to me. Like when I stopped eating meat, I go, well, I have now this new goal and I can be now sort of attentive to how well I'm reaching this goal. And you're going to make mistakes, right? In those early days, I had a fair amount of meat that I didn't expect to have because <laughs> I, I wasn't sophisticated about it yet. You know, you place an order at the restaurant and all of a sudden you go, oh, no, wait, <laughs> no, that's not the kind of thing that I was supposed to order. Or you sort of don't realize you're supposed to read the labels as closely as you need to if this is really important to you. And so the idea is like, yeah, you're going to try and fail. But as long as you keep your eye on that goal for the long term, you can sort of build sort of a, a savvy way of moving through the world that you can actually behave in line with the values that you sort of hold on to consciously. So that's my example. <laughs> and so I'm going to throw it back to you to sort of plug that into the prejudice control model, right? How does thinking about prejudice in this kind of everyday self-control breaking habits way give us something to latch onto as a model for confronting our own personal prejudices? Yeah, most definitely. This is this is a model about, you know, self-control and and builds on the classic control um models and also contemporary work um about um kind of automaticity and control um and how how the brain can react to stimuli with preconscious forms of control. Anyhow, so so most definitely um, the self-regulation of prejudice is is a form of conflict uh, detection and motivation, uh, motivational processes um, to work toward um, responding in in ways that are consistent with one's standards. Um, I like your example because part of what it illustrates with um, not eating meat anymore is automaticity. 
um, of a certain kind of responding, you know, automatically ordering meat or whatever, um, or just, you know, grabbing something and take a bite bite of it. I don't know. (laughs) So part, you know, sometimes, you know, things are automatized and that's why we respond in certain ways. But also um, your example illustrates that sometimes we just don't know what to watch out for. And so we may not realize we should look at the labels. You know, you're saying we should look at the labels of certain kinds of products to make sure that meat isn't in them. I'm a vegetarian and mm. same thing for me. Sometimes <laughs> I'm like, you're kidding yeah, me. What? There's meat in that? I never. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought to um, check. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But the same thing can happen a lot of the times with biases, right? We don't realize that the things that we do a lot of the times are biased. And so we lack the very knowledge. We, um, you know, we haven't read the label. Mm-hmm. We haven't really gained the knowledge to realize that what we are saying um, is offensive or that how we are behaving doesn't take, for example, um, individuals' culture um, into account or, you know, other other examples. So um, this is definitely um, a process where in the model, I talk about establishing cues for control. And so messing up is part of the process of learning um, to self-regulate. Um, one's biases. And so when we catch ourselves, when we come to the realization that we have engaged in a response that's more biased than we think we should, um, and that might be something as simple as like laughing at a biased joke, that helps us to establish environmental cues that can then serve as signals to trigger this control process. Um, This it, it can trigger us to, to in the future, slow down in our thinking. And um, just for those milliseconds to kind of reroute hmm. um, the response generation process so that it can be more consistent with our, um, how we want to respond. Mm-hmm. So th- this has all been about uh, confronting your own biases and sort of keeping a check on whether you're maybe leaping to a conclusion more quickly than you ought to. Um, but what about when we're in these situations where we see other people jumping to conclusions and we think, oh, is it on me? Am I am I going to be the one who has to say, you know, I don't think that's the right conclusion to reach, or I don't think it's quite appropriate to say that. How important do you think it is for those kinds of confrontations to happen too, if we're to work for, toward a less biased world? Yeah, I mean, confrontation is just absolutely essential. A change doesn't occur without confrontation, especially in this area in the area of of bias um, and and prejudice reduction. Um, you know, when I was working with the model, the self-regulation model, and how people can confront themselves and learn to detect their biases and reduce them, you know, in many ways, it just wasn't satisfying because it all rests on people realizing themselves that they're doing something biased. And, you know, we, as Mazarin Banaji and others research shows, you know, many, many uh, studies have shown, you know, we just often, we don't have that kind of self-insight. And it t- it's going to take other individuals to point out biases. 
So self so other confrontation is most definitely necessary um, to achieve more equitable environments um, and to see um, to to control discrimination in environments, I believe, and making confrontation normative that this is something that people know they can and should do, I think is very, very important. Um, you'd, you'd think that this would be a very desired, like, if I'm really motivated to keep my prejudices in check, and I go, you know what, I, I don't have all the tools to do it, please, everybody, just tell me, tell me, shout it out whenever I make a mistake. That would be the like a very useful tool <laughs> for me to reach my goal. But uh, I think we know that that isn't always how people experience it. <laughs> so in what ways, I guess really the, the question becomes, in what ways do these kinds of confrontations really excel and do what they're supposed to do and everybody comes out ahead? And where are the breaking points of confrontation where you go, well, <laughs> it might be helpful for this reason, but it's kind of counterproductive for this reason. If you could just sort of open up these confrontation experiences to see when are they good and when do they have these side effects? Yeah. So research done on interpersonal confrontations and one person confronting another or in small group contexts um, finds over and over and over again that following confrontation, people reduce their biases. They reduce their biases, you know, a week later on a similar task, they reduce their bi their biases are lower um, on, um, on other tasks that are somewhat related and even across time. So, for example, Kim Cheney's research has shown that if you confront people about negative stereotyping, um, they will also subsequently reduce their positive stereotyping about groups. And if you confront with respect to a particular group, let's say um, being prejudiced remarks in relation to black people, that people also will be more likely to control or reduce um, their biased remarks in connection with other people or assumptions, inferences that they make um, with other groups. And so um, it is very, very successful. Now we have, um, we meaning research in this area, have largely examined confrontation in societal contexts where the biases that we're looking at are generally where people, you know, general norms across society say you shouldn't really have those biases. You know, you shouldn't really do sexist things. Yeah, um, you really shouldn't have racial biases um, of this sort. If you go to a, an environment where that's not accepted, where people think, well, yeah, of course women should not be treated as well. And you try to confront people. It's not, it's not going to work. Um, it's going to result probably only in, in backlash. Um, and so, so by and large, confrontation is, is successful in reducing biases. We find that across so many different moderators, whether you do it in a hostile manner or in a really nice and sweet manner, whether you do it, um, whether it concerns sexism or racism, although racism does reduce a little bit more, you still get confrontation reducing sexist responses. Um, whether, you know, so it's just, it's remarkably effective <laughs> um, and consistently so and across time. 
But where you get, um, you can at the same time that confrontation reduces biases, people often do have that kind of negative reaction. So there are social costs to confrontation. And just as um, effective as confrontation is at reducing bias, it is also consistent and reliably and across time, you know, it does have negative effects on how the confronters are perceived because people don't like to be criticized. They don't like to be called out. And even if they might think in their mind, yeah, I want people to call me out, you know, mm-hmm. when it's done, <laughs> when it when it actually happens to them, there's this feeling like, geez, you know, um, and there there are these social costs of confrontation. So we've been looking a lot at how to try to reduce those social costs. And as a people pleaser, I need to ask: like, is it just that's just a that's just going to happen, right? Like, there's no way to get around this. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you're going to still like me, and I'm going to call you out. That that doesn't seem like that's how it how it works. Um. So there are we, we are starting to discuss to find factors that um, can play a role in the extent of social costs and that can really reduce them a lot. So, for example, Laura Hildebrand's dissertation research looked at the role of interpersonal trust. And so if you trust that this person has your back, if you trust that this person has, you know, good intentions for you, uh, social costs are attenuated a great deal when people are confronted about their biases. So most of the confrontation research has been done in lab settings um, or similar where we're interacting with strangers. But really confrontations often occur when you know people, right? And so for example, when friends confront friends, social costs are much lower than if you, you are confronted by a stranger. So in, interpersonal trust is something that we can, that naturally exists a lot of the times and that we can foster. So for example, in organizations, if you really want to create a culture that encourages confrontation and not um, social costs to confrontation, not perceiving people negatively for having confronted you, What you want to do is not only teach people how to confront and set the norm that it's, you know, that's accepted in this environment because it's all toward making our environments freer of discrimination, uh, more equitable. If you can at the same time have trust building exercises among your employees, you know, then you may be able to set up more of a win-win situation. There's a recent um, article out by Rattan, uh, Anita Rattan and Katie uh, Kroper and others uh, showing that if confrontations have embedded with them a gross growth mindset, and so the, the bias is pointed out, but then the person says, you know, I know people can change these things. And so, you know, I just, I wanted to point it out. Um, rather than a fixed my mindset, you know, like I know people are just prejudiced or not. So, you know, you're probably not going to be able to change it. I'm just letting you know you're a prejudiced. Yeah. Person. Yeah. Just letting you know you do this. Exactly. 
Um, the growth mindset is is hmm. associated with lower social costs. And so t- to the extent that our confrontations can communicate to the person that, look, I'm not trying to impugn your image as being egalitarian or fair. That's not what I'm suggesting here. I'm not trying to impugn your image as a non-prejudiced person. I'm not trying to, you know, this is not to make you feel prejudiced or like, to the extent that that can can be done, social costs are lower. Hmm. It reminds me too, as I'm thinking about it, of some of like a version of the self-regulation model being possibly helpful in that now I'm not looking out for moments of me being prejudiced <laughs> in that way. I'm looking out for moments of me being uh, unreasonably mad at other people for calling me out. Right? Can I, can we teach people to go, listen, sometimes people are going to call you out for saying the wrong thing, but when that happens, you should remind yourself that they have your interests at heart. You yourself said you want to get better at this. Um, sort of instantiating those values in a kind of, you know, uh, when I see it, this is what I'll think of. And maybe that yeah. could help smooth things over as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. You know, and I, you do see that kind of reasoning in um, folks who do work in um, more applied settings where they rely on the literature and and help people to understand the nature of implicit biases and that it can occur automatically. And then just how important therefore confrontation is and that we should accept this as something, you know, that's, it's okay, you know, and, and should even be welcomed if we are to grow as, um, as a as an organization, as an environment, where um, where bias is less likely to occur, hmm. and to your point too about making it more normal to confront, that could also take the sting out of it too. Because right now you go, do you tell everyone this? Are you just calling me out? Like I've never heard this. Whereas if it's just standard protocol, to hey, just so you know, like you said this when I'm sure you meant this. Uh, and maybe next time say it differently, you go, oh, yeah, this is the kind of advice we give each other in this society. By normalizing it, do you think that it would take the sting out of the social cost part of it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, normalizing it. Um, you know, a lot of the times these biases are people do something or say something and they don't realize that plays on a stereotype. Um or that it it's actually something biased. So, for example, I was in a um, a meeting with uh, other faculty members once, and somebody who was not black said to a black woman, "I think you're really getting aggressive about this." You know, I think that you know you you just seems like you're being loud and getting aggressive. And, you know, I think that person didn't understand what was going on in that situation and his perception of it was being fed by stereotypes. You know, that's going to take a lesson, you know, for that person to, to understand what's going on there. Um, I think I, 
once again, Andy, I think I just went on a tangent. No, I, I was I was tracking it. It sounded good to me. Uh, but but to the point of of feeling sort of it's incumbent on me to call someone out. One of my favorite stories of of our worlds in social psych is one that I heard about you at a conference years ago at a comedy show. And I know you know <laughs> where I'm going with this. So could, could you recount this experience just as like a one, how did this happen <laughs> in the first place? And also like what was going through your mind as maybe you were reflecting on the utility of the work that you do? Yeah. So um, we were at this, you know, this conference um, that so many in the field attend. And it's a really cool conference. Um, back back at this time, um, the conference had events in the evening that we uh, attended as a group. And at this conference, the organizers had set up a comedy show for us to see a comedy show which was really cool. And so we have a whole bunch of social psychologists in the audience. And we shared, I guess, this event with, I think it was people at an insurance convention in the same area. Hmm. You know, so there were two groups there, a bunch of social psychologists and a bunch of insurance people. Um, so there was um, a comedian that promised to be uh, quite good. And that comedian, though, had a warm-up act. And the warm-up act came on, and uh, the whole routine, all of the jokes centered on homophobia um, and really um, were making fun of gay people and um, doing kind of, you know, parodies. And it just, um, it was it was essentially gay bashing. Um, in, in the whole routine. And, you know, I looked around, I was sitting at a table with somebody who happened to be gay, you know, I'm kind of looking at them like, oh my God. And, you know, you could kind of hear the audience, like they, they weren't really laughing except some of the insurance folks, but, um, you, you could kind of hear some groans every once in a while or, you know, but yeah, there was, there was, they were getting laughs. He was getting some laughs and everything, but it just became so um, nasty. He, I just felt like this, this comedian was being so nasty. And so my intention was to leave. But as I left, I had to walk right across this kind of in front of the stage area, given where I was sitting to then go down the aisle to exit out. And so I'm standing in, essentially I found myself and standing in front of the comedian. <laughs> and I said, would you stop with these jokes? We don't enjoy these jokes. Do you know who this audience is? You know, and, and, you know, these, and so I confronted the comedian essentially about um, the bias content and it did disrupt the comedian's routine. <laughs> <laughs> it would be hard not to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I left. Your question centered on whether I was thinking about my research on confrontation, which I was just beginning at that time. Um, and most definitely, I am sure the fact that I was thinking about confrontation in a lot of my work life and coming up with paradigms and thinking about how it worked and why people didn't do it and when they should be doing it. Most definitely, I'm sure that that played into to what I did in that in that moment. And it, yeah, which was difficult to do because I was um, young in the field at the time 
and um, was sure that not everyone was going to react kindly to somebody doing this. Not everybody would view that as a, as a positive thing. Um, you can dislike something, but don't go and disrupt the what's going on. Anyhow, so I'm sure that was all my work was salient in my mind, but what drove that confrontation at that moment really was um, exasperation, frustration, and anger. Um, that this is what we were sitting in front of and just kind of taking it like um, we had to because we were there. And, you know, we didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you could feel those things and just quietly slink away, right? And, you know, that's probably often what people think. They go, ah, it's not my place to really do anything. And I'll just sort of not say anything, but I won't support it. Um, but to actually take the extra step and say, you know what? <laughs> this this is not the way we should be talking. This does this isn't appropriate. This isn't good. Uh, that's a step that, that people don't often take. But as your work shows, it has a, an impact, right? It makes uh, a difference. And I'm wondering now if we were to find this comedian again and see how his uh, how his set has evolved how over time. Yeah. <laughs> is it is it the same uh, as back then, or maybe you were the catalyst to change <laughs> the trajectory, right? Because your work would suggest that it could have, at least in some small way, um, and and in the in a bigger sense, I, I wanted to get your take on why is this such an impactful thing to do, right? You said confrontation reduces bias over and above, like all these, even under all these different conditions, it just reliably has this impact. But why? What is it? Like, why is this the thing <laughs> that actually can do so much of the work? Yeah, that's a great <clears throat> question. Um, I think that it's a really good question. So I, th- I think that bias historically using stereotypes, you know, um, making those remarks, hey, 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 you know, under, under the breath and or doing things, you know, subtly that are biased. It's always, you know, it's, even after civil rights movement and, you know, it was, it's been kind of an accepted part of the mainstream um, and majority group behavior, which is, you know, let's take, you know, men and sexism, for example. Um, You know, you still, (laughs) there's a lot of sexism out there and not just of the benevolent form. But you know, there's boys will be boys, and still those remarks, and there's Locker still talk. still that kind of behavior, um, or even you know, kind of subtle things. You're out to dinner with all of, with these male colleagues, and they're all called sir by the wait staff, sir, 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 and you get to you, and you're called sweetie or honey. You know, it's still accepted. It's so much these kinds of biases, oh, come on, you know, it's just, it's, it's just kind of accepted and yet they do so much harm. And so I think that confrontation is just so powerful 
because it tells people, uh-uh, that's not acceptable here. That's absolutely not something that I'm going to accept. And we've looked at affirmed confrontations where other people in the situation chime in or don't. You know, we manipulate that. So other people will say, yeah, you know, she's right. You know, that's, you know, not the kind of thing that's accepted here. Or it's not affirmed. And, you know, if it's affirmed, that has an even more powerful role on communicating that, no, you just really, you're, you can't do that here, you know, in the perception of norms, um, that it's not okay to do something biased. And so I think, I think that's part of where confrontation's power comes from, is it makes it clear. I'm not going to accept this. I'm not just going to laugh it off. I'm not going to just say, you know, like, oh, those things will happen or boys will be boys, or, um, you know, well, that's just part of how they were raised. I think, I think so many of us are, you know, kind of taught like, oh, don't speak up, you know, let that go. And confrontation just, you know, puts the gate down and says, nope. (laughs) It's also immediate, right? As opposed to like, oh, in three weeks, we're going to have bias training in the in the break room. You go, well, that's just so withdrawn from the moment in which I am actually ha- saying the thing or doing the thing that's inappropriate. Whereas confrontation just says, hey, right now, <laughs> before you forget you did this, right? It's like <laughs> they talk about punishment, right? It has to be swift and uh, appropriate to the, the – uh, what the thing that it's, it is that you did. And, and that's kind of what confrontation is. You go like, oh, I'm – I roll in the currency of social acceptance and you took it away from me at the moment I did the bad thing. There's, there's nowhere to run from it, right? You're sort of, you're faced with it. You either have to concoct some explanation for yourself or go, Oh yeah, maybe I am actually as subject to this as they say that I am. Yeah. Yeah. Or even if you don't want to admit or, you know, accept the message kind of as like, okay, I believe I shouldn't do this. Um, still, the conf- you know confrontation tells you that you can't get away with doing that in this environment. Well, you mentioned the affirming uh, confrontations, and it reminded me of what I think is a very uh, important direction that this is going in, which is confrontation is not only maybe like makes me feel good for <laughs> saying, hey, I confronted the bully, it not only may chip away at bias in the other person, but it may also communicate an air of acceptance more broadly, right? To those folks with marginalized identities within earshot, being able to say, right? Like you said, at this show, someone standing up and saying, this isn't right, <laughs> is a powerful thing not only to get the comedian to change course, <laughs> but also to communicate to folks in the room like, hey, you don't have to tolerate this either, right? Like this is a place where we ultimately want to have each other's backs. So could you describe a little bit the direction that that uh, has gone in? Yeah, sure. Um, so we looked at whether confrontations could serve as a identity safety cue for members of marginalized groups in a series of experiments. So this research showed that when uh, members of a group about which a bias has, uh, has occurred in a certain environment, 
when that bias is confronted and it's affirmed by other people who say, who speak up too, and they say, yeah, that's, you know, you shouldn't be saying that or, you know, like, yeah, let's, let's be a little more fair in this environment. If it's affirmed by others in the environment as well, that helps to communicate to members of marginalized uh, groups or minoritized groups that they, their identity is safe in that environment. Okay. Um, That they can feel comfortable in that environment. So, so stepping back, like if somebody is a, is a member of a, of a minoritized group and they observe that someone has said something biased, right? Let's say in a work setting, maybe they're interviewing for a job and, you know, they observe that someone has said something biased. They're going to say, no way, Jose, <laughs> I don't want to be in that environment. My identity is not going to be safe in that environment. Now, can a confrontation help? to restore the sense that their identity could be safe in that environment. Not just a confrontation, it turns out. Not just one person confronting another. One confronter is not enough to restore identity safety. It takes um, other individuals who are also there to chime in and say, yeah, come on, you know, come on, you know, think twice before you make those kinds of comments or, you know, to say, oh, I agree. I agree with the person who did the confrontation, just to speak up in some little way. And that helps to convey to members of minoritized groups identity safety, that they can can feel comfortable in this environment, knowing other people are going to speak up and confront bias and aren't going to just sit back and let it happen. You know, it's best if bias didn't occur in the first place, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right? Yeah. But uh, we know bias does occur. And so it's it's wonderful to know that you have allies, that your identity can be safe. That's great. Um, as we wrap up, I'm curious, what are the, the new directions this is taking? I mean, this is a We've pretty much done a career-spanning overview here in the last uh, 30, 40 minutes. Uh, but it's, I mean, there's still, I'm sure, new questions to tackle. So what, what are sort of the things that, that you're working on these days that maybe push this uh, even further? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, we are really trying to understand how social costs can be reduced because many people do not confront because they fear social costs. They um, And people feel guilty and they ruminate on the fact that they didn't confront and they feel bad in the future if they don't confront. Still, at that time and in that moment, it is difficult to get yourself to confront. And so because, because of the fear of social costs, because, you know, people, like you said, they want a role in social cur- currency. You know, they want to, to feel accepted. And so... We're focusing um, in a number of studies on understanding how social costs can be mitigated. We're also looking at the extent to which confrontations actually do serve to establish non-prejudice, descriptive, and injunctive norms in the environment. This has kind of been an assumption that they help to establish those norms, you know, like they communicate that prejudice isn't accepted in the environment. But... Another possibility is that folks look at the confronter and they say, they must be a social justice warrior. There must be something kind of weird about them that they would confront like that. Because after all, it's not being nice 
to confront, you know. So does confrontation actually establish descriptive norms, anti-bias descriptive norms that people do not do bias things in this environment? And does it establish injunctive norms that you should not do things in this environment? So we're examining uh, that in a series of studies. And um, the answer so far um, is that even non-affirmed confrontation establishes those injunctive norms that you shouldn't do things that are biased in this environment um, and to some extent establishes the descriptive norms. But we know that injunctive norms are much more important for trans situational influence and for guiding behavior than descriptive norms. So it's good news. <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, that is great to hear. And uh, I just wanted to say thanks for taking all the time to walk us through the work that you've done in this. Yeah, thank you so much, Andy, for asking great questions and having me on. I feel like I rambled too much, but hopefully (laughs) you get something useful out of it. No, this was great. Alrighty, that'll do it for this episode of Opinion Science. Thank you to Margot Monteith for sharing her work with us. As always, head over to the webpage for this episode to see her website and find links to the research that we talked about. Make sure you're subscribed to Opinion Science wherever you get podcasts. Or or I think maybe I should say follow Opinion Science on your favorite podcast app. I, I, I don't know. Do what you need to do to stay in the loop on new episodes. Um, if Twitter happens to still exist, we're on at OpinionSciPod. If you're still on Facebook, also opinion side pod listen i i don't know what social media we're going to have in a month <laughs> but as long as we at least have the internet opinionsciencepodcast.com is the place to find all the episodes all the transcripts all the links everything oh and for uh, u.s listeners i hope you enjoy thanksgiving this week H- however it is you plan to do so mostly i'm looking forward to not responding to emails for a few days and making a pie it's the little things right That's it for me. See you in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. Bye-bye.